I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the forthcoming novel Brotherless Night. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And because this show is about the news, we've played Where Were You When more than a few times during our conversations, but we've never talked about the LA riots. Which happened 30 years ago um, this year, actually. And I was 12 when they happened, so I remember... I made me feel yeah, bad was... when you say things like that. <laughs> um, I was a tween. I remember watching the news, and I was just being... I just, I remember being horrified, but I don't think I really understood what was going on. And, you know, I grew up in Maryland, so it was very far away. I don't, I don't think I had any idea about the number of people who died or, or how many people were hurt. Um, there were 63 casualties, and I definitely, definitely didn't understand the main incident that set off the riots, which now, of course, um, I live in Minneapolis, and police brutality is something that has affected the life of my city in, in profound ways. Um, and in 1992, when the riots happened, four policemen were acquitted of beating Rodney King, who was an unarmed black man who was arrested after a high-speed chase. Where were you? Well, um, I was... So when he... when when. King was attacked. That was in the spring of 91. So I was just finishing college and I then was going to start as a reporter, an intern reporter at the Kansas City Star. But then when the riots themselves happened, which is was in the summer of 92, after the verdict that basically acquitted the officers who had been videotaped brutally beating this man. Um, then I was in grad school by then and I was in I was taking classes with Jim McPherson who we talk about often on the show, and he talked about this a lot. And it really informed, I think, the way that he was talking about race in America and its centrality to the way that we were think about each other and our and, and the way it should inform our writing. So it was a crucial and very important event that I remember discussing for hours with other students, with Jim, with everybody. Wow. What did I mean, so what did Jim 
What did Jim say? <laughs> I mean, he's, he had a lot of different takes, and I am not going to try to recreate a James McPherson lecture here on the podcast on the fly from memory. I would, it would be interesting to go back and look at notebooks. Um, but, you know, I just think that it was his way of saying, like, I think that he felt that white students thought, hey, race is kind of over. Everything's fine. And he was like saying, no, this, will you look at this? Pay attention to what's happening here. This is a part of an old tradition that is still alive of racism and brutality. And you need to pay attention to it. I think that for the, at the surface, that was the main point that I think he was trying to make, which is a very fair point to make. So, you know, I think as someone revisiting these events this year um, and trying to fill in the gaps, the things that my 12-year-old self did not parse, and as someone coming to it as an outsider, I think by far one of the most helpful accounts and one of the most interesting ones as a writer was a piece by Hector Tobar, who was a reporter at the LA Times when the riots happened. And this spring, he wrote a piece for the New York Times Sunday Magazine reflecting on the riots and uh, considering what it was like to write about them back in 1992. Yeah, it was a fantastic piece, um, and I'm very excited that we have him here today to talk to us about it and the riots and what preceded them, um, and of course, what followed. Hector Tobar is the author of five books published in 15 languages, including the critically acclaimed New York Times bestseller, Deep Down Dark, the untold stories of 33 men buried in a Chilean mine and the miracle that set them free. His new novel is The Last Great Road Bump, published by MCD for our Strauss Chirot. And Hector is also a contributing writer for the New York Times opinion pages and, a, and an associate professor at the University of California, Irvine. He's written for The New Yorker, The LA Times, and other publications. Deep Down Dark was adapted into the film The 33, starring Antonio Banderas. His short fiction has appeared in Best American Short Stories, LA Noir, Ziziva, and Slate. Hector, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, this spring, you wrote a story for the New York Times Magazine titled The LA Riots Were 30 Years Ago. I'm still trying to understand them. I could say the same thing. Um, I'm not as expert in those as you are. Um, it's an excellent and in many ways surprising piece. We're going to get to its contents, but first I wanted you to talk a little bit about what it was like to be a reporter, especially a reporter of color at the LA Times then. Well, yeah, this is, um, you know, the, the 1990s, um, the newsrooms of America <clears throat> were just beginning to uh, integrate themselves. You know, um, I was in a program that was specifically uh, to integrate this mostly white newsroom called the, the Minority Editorial Training Program. Minority was still a word that was, uh, you know, in wide circulation then. And, um, you know, I was like this young kid of Guatemalan descent. My parents are Guatemalan immigrants. Uh, very humble backgrounds, and suddenly in this position of great power, um, in in a newsroom where you know the entire city was my playground. I could go anywhere in the city of Los Angeles uh, to write stories. I went to homeless camps and to uh, you know political fundraisers in Malibu. I was in federal court and I was in um, you know the city and county jails. So I got to see just so much of the city. Uh, and at the same time, you know, um, just feeling the limitations of what I could say in a newspaper. Um, it was, you know, every day was a bit of a challenge. Um, it was the challenge of finding ways to uh, to write stories that were about my passions and that were about the injustices that I saw in the city, the inequality that I saw in the city. Um, so it was, um, 
it was a fantastic place to work. You know, at that time, the Los Angeles Times had a circulation of you know, one million, more than one million. And so my stories would appear on the front page of the newspaper or in the metro section, and they would have this incredible impact. Uh, you know, I wrote exposés. And I just also just felt the deep frustration that everything that I wrote was mediated through this institution that was dominated by white men who were cautious, um, liberal-minded, yes, but also very cautious. And so it was, uh, it was, it was a, a lot of mixed feelings working for a, a newspaper like that in the, 19, in the 1990s. Do you feel like, how far do you think that we've come on that front? Oh, well, we've come light years. You know, I mean, there are just so many editors of color and there are, you know, there is in the society at large, you know, the, 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 the rhetoric, um, the, the, um, the language of resistance, for example, to police brutality has gone from the fringes of American culture, you know, to a, to a um, radical activist minority to being almost mainstream discourse now. <laughs> you know, we have, you know, major corporations taking on the symbolism and the language even of the Black Lives Matters movement. You know, that to me is, um, is stunning. At the same time, I think that there is this um, incredible sort of cons- cultural conservatism, uh, you know, in, in American media. There is this, um, this allergy to uh, risk-taking risk and to different kinds of storytelling. And so a lot of things have changed and a lot of things have not, <laughs> you know? And, um, and especially, I think, when it comes to talking about the Latino community and talking about uh, Latino immigrants, there is just a huge gap between where Latino culture is, between um, the stories that I hear, for example, from my students, which are these incredibly rich um, tales of, of their upbringing and of their communities and the sort of stereotyped, very shallow coverage you see of the Latino community uh, in American newspapers and even more in American television and film. And so, so that, that to me is something that hasn't changed at all. Yeah. I mean, as I'm asking this question, I should say, I mean, about 10 years after the LA riots, I was um, like an emerging journalist who was in magazine journalism where I think I might've been maybe the only woman of color in the office that I worked in, um, and we're certainly the first. And it was um, such a dramatic change for me. I mean, magazine journalism is its own is its own thing. But um, so it's interesting to hear you talk about the LA Times trying to trying to integrate back in '92. And when you were writing about the riots in particular, I noticed the lead story that you you co wrote with Leslie Berger, and you include the opening paragraphs in your Times piece. And note that your white editors removed any reference to race in those paragraphs. I was like, I remember this, Um, like that feeling. Um, Could you talk about how well or poorly the LA Times was prepared to handle a story like Rodney King's at at the time that you were covering it? Well, you know, on one level, it was extremely well prepared because it had such a huge uh, and talented newsroom. You know, we had like, you know, some of the best crime reporters in the country we had some great government reporters, um, and we just had this huge staff that covered. Uh, you know, we had so many suburban bureaus, for example. Uh, we had um, we had all these really great city reporters, and so on the one hand, you know, the the newspaper was had all the resources to cover, you know, something like as complex as the Rodney King case. At the same time, the newspaper was really incredibly naive and frightened by the, by issues of race. Um, you know, it's it's just you can just imagine a, a newsroom where most of the decisions 
from the middle level of editor all the way to the top are being made by people who at that time, you know, white men, also white men of the 1990s, you know, 30 years less enlightened than they are today. And so, um, and so they were really woefully unprepared. Um, they, I think they had no sense that the city might explode. Um, they had no sense uh, of, of how deep the passions ran, that they weren't just the passions of an activist minority, but that they were also the passions of just everyday working folk in the African-American community, and that the African-American middle class uh, would, would end up joining you know, this, um, this rebellion that took place uh, in the aftermath of the verdict. I was an intern reporter at the Star, the Kansas City Star, that summer of 91. It was my first job right out of college. And I felt like this, the Star has gone on recently to apologize for doing a bad job uh, about talking and writing about race. And they made a very public apology. Mike Fannin, who's the current president, did that. Um, I think he was at the paper at that time. Um, but the things that you're talking about so resonate for me. Like, first of all, the newsroom was huge. They had like hundreds of journalists, right, which is not the case now. Um, but there were very few journalists of color. I was filling in actually for a, a cop reporter who was black, who was on vacation. And I remember a Latina reporter named Mary Sanchez, who I really admired. It just all of the things that you say in that article about like sort of the hesitancy, all the upper management was definitely white. Like and the concern about writing about race was certainly rings true for me. So we wanted to um, the, the King beatings happened in in 91, the incident, right, that you first wrote the story on. Um, but the riots happened a year later in 92 when the police who attacked him were acquitted. You also reported on that. What was that like? Uh, reporting on the, on the verdict? Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> you know, as I said, we were um, woefully unprepared. We were overprepared in some aspects and underprepared in others. And so I was writing that day a, uh, a, a story about the police reaction to the verdicts. And so we had a main story that was going to be written on the verdicts as they as they came in. And then we're going to have many sidebars, as we would say back in the day. Yeah, the yeah, I remember that term. <laughs> yeah. And so I was doing a sidebar on the police response. And I was the rewrite person in the newsroom. And then we had this reporter um, who went out into the field. Um, very, very great reporter. Uh, this white woman whose name I don't want to mention um, because I might get her in trouble. Um, and she was going out to the uh, police stations. And so she um, she went to um, she went to the she was at the seventy seventh police station, which is in South Central Los Angeles, when the verdict came in, and then we saw the first images uh, of of what was taking place on the streets. And I told her, "Hey, there's something going on at the corner of Florence and Normandy, this sort of now infamous intersection in in South Central Los Angeles. Maybe you should roll on out there." And she rolled on out there with a white photographer, um, and they were both attacked. Their car was attacked. And she called back and, um, and, and told me that they had come under attack. And, and soon we could see the images of people being um, attacked by these growing mobs um, that were out on the street. And so we, we were suddenly witness to this event and we were all sort of scrambling. I wrote my story. Um, the next day we thought the riot was over. The morning came and we thought it was over, but it, it started all over again. I was um, this time on the streets doing a story about um, what all the damage that had been caused, the economic impact of the rioting the night before, you know, looking back at this 
event that had happened the night before, thinking it was over. And as I was doing this, the riot erupted in my midst, you know, where I was uh, in South Central Los Angeles. And I spent the rest of the day following the the fires um, northward through the metropolis, covering about 10 miles of, um, of city streets as I just continued moving further northward and northward following these fires, calling to my notes to the newsroom. And it was absolutely, um, at first, exhilarating because as a person of color, as a native of the city of Los Angeles, I was watching my hometown rise up, right? Rise up against so many um, injustices, against the inequality in the city, against the insult of the geography of the city, et cetera, et cetera. But I would say that after about an hour or so, it just became plain to me that it was a survival of the fittest on the streets of LA and that um, it was a moment when any violent person could control any given intersection. And it was frightening. It was frightening. I saw a person get shot. I saw um, I saw a mob uh, of uh, beat up uh, a man on the on the street. Um, and so it was um, it was terrifying and it was it was tragic, really, because it was it was an explosion that lacked a focus. It lacked a political program, right? It was a revolution without revolutionary ideas. And so um, it was It was a very uh, complex mixture of feelings for me that day. So you call the LA riots, uh, and I'm quoting you here, a war I saw unfolding firsthand. And, and you're talking about the lack of a political program. It, it that doesn't mean, of course, that the violence didn't have causes. And, and you, that was one of your driving motivations to write about this, that you wanted people to understand. And, and you also wrote, um, but I wanted them to see the Los Angeles that I knew and lived in, a city where people lived in tense coexistence, but coexistence nonetheless. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit more about that. Oh, yeah. Well, you see, um, when I was asked to write this piece on the anniversary of the riots, um, uh, an editor there, uh, Ishmael Mohammed. Uh, suggested that I write about Long Beach Wilson High School. He had heard that there had been a riot at the school before the actual Rodney King verdict um, actually came out uh, in the hours of the day before. That turned out to be incorrect. But when I looked at Wilson High School, um, which did have some incidents that took place after the verdict, when I looked at the yearbook, I saw this incredible um, spectrum, right, of, of faces of, of races, of ethnicities. Um, this had to be one of the most ethnically diverse schools in Southern California and thus in the United States. You know, they had large numbers of Southeast Asian students. Um, they had um, a lot of Mexican immigrant students, many white students and black students. And so to me, this particular school became this symbol of the kind of LA that was, you know, this this LA where all these different kinds of people have been brought together, which is of course the story of Los Angeles and the story of most American cities. That They are places where different races and ethnicities, different nationalities encounter themselves. And that's basically been the story of the United States since its founding actually, you know? And so, um, and so to me, the way we all sort of dealt with each other in the, in the months and years before the riots and the lessons that we learn from the riots, to me, that's a great story that has not been told. Um, it has many nuances to it. Uh, you know, um, black and white people at this high school and in the city of Los Angeles, um, you know, lived next to each other. They, they started families together in many cases. Um, they worked with one another. And there was a certain kind of cooperation you would see in everyday life 
at the same time that there were these underlying grievances, right, that come from American history or from our personal lives, these grievances that have to do with just being humiliated by racism, humiliated by the caste structure of the United States, right? A city like Los Angeles has castes. You know, Latino laborers are part of the of the of this underclass of the city. And so to me, that that larger story is a really complicated one. It really takes it takes the subtlety uh, of a novelist. It takes um, it takes um, the the novelist's eye for detail and for personality and for character. And that's sort of part of what I try to do in my work in this piece for the New York Times Magazine and also in my work in general. It reminded me, your term of tense coexistence reminded me of a term from Ralph Ellison. He uses the term antagonistic cooperation to talk about the way that the races in America work together when they're working together. Um, and that was what I, I, I was striking to me about the piece. You know, you don't skirt or de-emphasize the divisions and injustices behind the riots, but, you know, the life at Woodrow Wilson High School turned out to be much more complicated than just like, this was a terrible thing that happened, right? And the thing I like about Ralph Ellison is that Ellison does the same thing. He's able to see, he's able to talk about the, the possibilities of America while also talking about its faults, right? And I think we don't get to hear a lot about the possibilities of America anymore. Mostly we are talking about its faults. We're having, you know, all kinds of terrible things are happening now. The president tried to overthrow the government, you know, that we have a tremendous number of racists who are running the Republican Party. There are all kinds of things that are wrong, right? But there are things that are possible. In America, there's a reason why we care that 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 these things are happening incorrectly in in parts of the society, and, and that um, uh, reminded me. Uh, you talk about in this piece the, the memory of the hope and potential of what you call the peculiar ways that Angelinos construct multi-ethnic lives together. Um, was that how you expected the piece to turn out? Were you headed there, or was that where you found yourself after you actually just looked into the high school? <laughs> I think that one of the great um, untold truths of being a journalist is that journalism involves a great deal of imagination because you have to imagine the story that you're going to find. You have a hypothesis of what you're going to find. And so as soon as I saw this yearbook, you know, which I was able to access online, the, the class of uh, 1992 uh, yearbook from uh, Wilson High School, and I saw all those faces, I, I thought, there's a story there. There's a story of these people living together. And so my questions were geared toward uncovering the daily rhythms of life. And I had tons more stuff than, than what I was able to get into the New York Times piece. But just, you know, where specific groups of people would hang out in the, on the campus and how, you know, the, how they would sort of encounter one another. Um, you know, one of my favorite um, stories is told uh, to me by one of the African-American uh, members of the football team who talked about just this incredible bonding on the football team between the black and the white players, but also how that bonding did not extend right to their personal lives um, as soon as the you know football game or the football practice was over. Right. As soon as they left the locker room, the field, um, he felt these, you know, these separations uh, as strong as ever. And so to me, that, that sort of, you know, that, that sort of being drawn together and still sort of being pulled apart, that, that tension back and forth, that's, that's the United States and race, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. Um, it's, it's this, uh, uh, you know, I, so many stories of 
white students learning about racism by seeing the inequality, for example, in police stops. I interviewed a, a young woman who was part of the sort of stoner Dungeons and Dragons crowd, rock and roll, <laughs> death metal crowd, who described being stopped I should have hung police. out more with that crowd when I was in high school. <laughs> yeah. I missed out on that. Yeah, and she would describe being stopped by the police for pot and how they would just sort of take her pot and throw it away and how she would see what happened to African-American, uh, her African-American friends or her Latino friends, her Mexican-American friends, when they were stopped by the police. And, and so for her, growing up at that high school was a great lesson about how race worked in America. Um, so it's a very, you know, and, and so people are making, you know, they are learning those things. Um, you know, my, uh, my fa- one of my favorite interviews was with um, this Vietnamese um, um, uh, immigrant student. And he talks about just how he, his, his slow learning, how America worked and feeling that everyone in the school accepted him and just being completely confused about what was going on with Rodney King, not understanding uh, that at all. And so, uh, yeah, to me, it's, it's really wonderful to enter into these spaces and describe their, their intimacies and their confusions, um, you know, their realizations, their misunderstandings. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. And of course, this is also something that we see in your novel, The Last Great Road Bum, which is this fascinating mix of fact and fiction about a white Midwesterner who who travels the world. And um, it's to hear you say um, that journalism is also an act of imagination is so useful and interesting after having read the book. And the book is based on the life of Joe Sanderson, who traveled the world and, and died in El Salvador in, in 82. And you've been a journalist and a novelist. And in this instance, you had access to... Um, a lot of primary sources, including his writing. And you did start writing about him as a journalist when you wrote about him for the LA Times back in back in 08. And I'm so I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about why you chose to write about him in the form of a novel and, and what that fictional space opened up for you. Well, yeah, at first, I, I decided that I would try to write Joe's story as a nonfiction book. And I tried, I started to write some nonfiction book proposals, which I had done before, and I'd written nonfiction books before. And they all seemed to be so devoid of life. You know, he seemed to be kind of a pathetic character in these nonfiction proposals, no. which is the way he was often written about. Um, right after he died, there were several stories about him, including a, a long piece in Mother Jones that portrayed him as kind of a pathetic, lonely figure. He just wasn't coming to life. And I thought about it. And I also thought about my own career and how that if I wrote another book of nonfiction, I told myself, you know, I might not write a, a novel again because, you know, I might be pegged as this nonfiction writer. It had this great success with my book on the Chilean miners, Deep Down Dark. And so my very sort of selfish career ambitions melded with the story in this book once I realized that Joe himself wanted to be a novelist. And I thought, my God, so Joe took all these journeys. He told his mother, look, I'm, I'm writing the great American novel. That's why I'm going to Africa. That's why I'm going to Central America. It's because I want to be a writer. I want to write, you know, this novel that explains the way the world is and what I've seen and lived. <laughs> and he was, of course, a terrible novelist, a terrible writer. He didn't revise. He didn't take any classes. Uh, you know, he sought no editing. Um, and so I thought, well, why not write a novel about a guy who's trying to write a novel by living his life like a character in a novel, right? And because I've written novels, I can do this. And so it, in many ways, it's, it's a story not just about Joe and his life, but it's also a story about um, writing 
and 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 the you know and the decisions that we make um the uh delusions we tell ourselves when we when we sit down to write um a nonfiction book or a novel right and, what and delusions? I just had so much fun doing that <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Everything I do is totally <laughs> I enter into these enterprises. Enter into these enterprises only with total confidence. <laughs> um, but this is one of the great things about the book. It's it's like quite it's quite funny, which seems to me like part of the kind of life the life giving spark of the fiction of it. Oh, I just had so much fun. You know, once you know you get to know somebody really well when you spend. Uh, four or five years reading their their letters and their journal. You know, Joe had this journal that he uh, was carrying in his backpack when he was killed, fighting with the rebels in El Salvador. And the rebels uh, thankfully uh, preserved it and uh, allowed me to read it. His family gave me access to his letters. And I just, be- I began to sort of, um, I began to sort of inhabit uh, his skin, which is of course what you need to do when you create a character for a novel. You need to inhabit um, their 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 thoughts and their desires and their ambitions, and Joe's ambitions and desires were very recognizable to me. <laughs> you know, not only the desire to to read a book, but the desire to feel powerful, to be um, loved, and to be seen, as we say today, uh, out in the world. Joe wanted to be seen as a as a thinking person, as um, you know, as this uh, jolly, crazy American that he was. And um, yeah, it was it was great fun uh, losing myself in his in his life for the time that I worked on the book. But he's also uh, I I really enjoyed the novel, and um, he also one of the things that was interesting to me about him as a character, and it connects to what we were talking about earlier, is that he's a connector. He's a he's a person who tries he tries to cross barriers between communities that would be traditionally there. It just sort of seems to be part of his natural being um he makes well-intentioned and failed attempts as a high school to quote to quote encourage the mixing of races at urbana high school um where he goes to school and then he rejects a conventional life to go into the world and live in communities where he's an outsider um and to stay an outsider to keep traveling um his interest is peaked particularly by a family trip to jamaica and so i wondered if you could talk a little bit about that part of his character and then read to us from that section of the book Oh yeah, throughout his life, Joe sought um, adventure among people who were, uh, you know, the outsiders uh, in American culture. Um, the downtrodden, right, uh, is, is the way his brother would put it. You know, the people who were on the bottom, uh, you know, the bottom rungs of the, uh, of the ladders, social ladders of the United States. And um, yes, he did this throughout his life, you know, he... Um, he uh, he did so when he was in college. Briefly, uh, he he had an African American girlfriend, um, and I had great. It was a great pleasure to sort of imagine this relationship in the context of nineteen sixties segregated, you know, America. And then later, throughout his life, he just traveled to all these places in the world. He became a fluent Spanish speaker from all his travels in Latin America. He lived in Peru for a number of years, and so he yes, he becomes this person who. Who brings this Midwestern sensibility, this sense of fairness and equality? Um, uh, he brings that to his his travels because he sees so much, so much violence. He sees so much, um, you know, inequality that's produced by American imperialism. He's in Vietnam and in Laos during the Vietnam War. Uh, in one of his letters, which I reproduce, he describes seeing the B fifty twos 
make their big wide slope turns after they've dropped their bombs over the Laotian Vietnamese border. Um, and so he sees all of this suffering and he comes home uh, to tell his mother and father about it. You know, he tells his mother, who's this Republican, very conservative member of the Daughters of the American Revolution, he tells her what he's seen around the world. And in his own way, he changes her and he changes the people around him. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, um, it was just, it's really a story about that connects this American middle-class white family to the world of the Pax Americana, right? To the imperial wars, to the, you know, to these conflicts that take place uh, in the world in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. And so now, now I'll read this, um, and I'll read this passage. Um, this particular passage is from uh, one of the early chapters in the book, in which Joe is in his 20s, and he's setting off on these journeys around the world. He's saved up his money. Um, later, he's going to uh, save up a lot of money by painting flagpoles in the United States and doing other kinds of jobs like that. And so he's going, um, he's going to um, travel around the world. And he actually circles the world twice. And this is from one of his first trips. And in this particular trip, he is headed to Jamaica with his mother and father. Uh, his, his father is an um, entomologist. He's the world's leading expert on the June beetle. and He's going to Jamaica to examine, uh, you know, the insects of that Caribbean island. And so that's where this passage starts. Um, he's on the, on the ship <clears throat> headed towards uh, Jamaica. <clears throat> um, As they approached Jamaica, the sea calmed and the clouds parted, and the bluish-black silhouette of the island grew before them until it resembled a continent all its own. The Caribbean sun began to bake and burn, and Joe saw his mother squinting and frowning on the ship's deck, like an Illinois ant under a hot lamp. Dr. Lewis, a naturalist at the Institute of Science, greeted the Sandersons at the dock in Kingston and drove them into the green and flowery city, which was crowded with animals and automobiles. Virginia felt her seasickness returning. Virginia is Joe's mother. Everyone driving on the wrong side of the road, she wrote later in her travel journal. A madhouse, honking, yelling, goats and burrows getting out of the way. Everyone in this big island metropolis was black. A simple fact, but startling and exhilarating for Joe. The traffic policeman in the starched white uniform and pith helmet and cream-colored gloves, the vendors in wide-brimmed straw hats, the snappy students pedaling bicycles. They talked to white people in English, but spoke to each other in an ancient, rounded-off form of the language Joe did not entirely understand. For the first time, the very nature of the human race and the nations of the world became truly clear to him. The colorful photographs in encyclopedia entries, Jamaica, British Possession, population 1,400,000, and National Geographic articles, Jamaica, hub of the Caribbean, haunt of buccaneers, were now real places. Each spot on the globe was a separate dimension with its own rules of speech, its own ways of walking. In Urbana, white was a rarely used label whose true meaning was not black, an obvious misnomer given the reds and browns mixed into the Caucasian palette. Here, however, amid the blue-black faces and the russet-skinned, Joe felt his Europeanness, 
the genetic rope that tied him to snowy valleys where men carved furrows into the icy ground. The Sandersons reached their hotel, the Melody Guest House, and the black city disappeared behind the walls and front gate of their compound. They entered a capsule of whiteness, where the hotel guests sat in wicker chairs, under fans, drinking tea in private gardens. This was what a colony was, shut in, away from the natives. After a few days, Joe set off with Steve to explore the island. They jumped on a bus to Montego Bay, and as two white boys, they became the targets of startled stares and also a loud comment spoken in patois, which was followed by peals of laughter, including the high-pitched clarinet notes of a woman's hee-hee-hee. Kingston bade them farewell from behind curtains of wandering wild poinsettias, and their bus followed an asphalt highway into a rural greenscape where palm fronds burst skyward like fireworks and primeval trees bore fruit the size of footballs. The driver stopped at several spots along the road where no structures could be seen, only fields and footpaths, and people got on and off the bus at these nowhere places. Thank you so much. I love that passage. Thank you. Thank you. It's um, that line about it being a continent all its own is, um, yeah, it's it's remarkable to listen to that passage, passage specifically after reading the piece about the riots and about your writing about writing about race. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how your experience of covering those things, covering the riots and, and thinking about race in that American context influenced your fiction and particularly your imagining of Joe Sanderson. Well, above all, I think that being a journalist really trains you to, um, to be open-minded and to, um, to try and find those magical things that happen when you go to unexpected places, places you might not have gone otherwise. So when you're a reporter, you know, you get assigned to go cover a story, let's say, in a community you've never been to before, like Watts. And you go to Watts and you might have a certain stereotype in your mind of what Watts is. And then you go there and you see the, what the things that individual people do with their homes, the decorations they put, the Virgin Mary statue that they put in front of their house, or in some cases, the towers that they built, right, from discarded, from discarded uh, you know, bottles and, and whatnot. I'm thinking specifically of the Watts Towers. And so life teaches you, a journalistic life teaches you that, um, that the world is filled with surprises. And so, uh, and so that is part of what I've tried to bring into my fiction, is that sense of surprise that I have uh, when I wander into a new place. And also, I think that journalism, when you do it well, is really an act of empathy. Because in order to interview someone uh, well, in order to have them open up to you um, and share with you all the things that they really need to share, you have to really be a blank slate. You cannot have any prejudgments. Um, You have to see things from their point of view. You have to enter into their point of view. And so doing that as a journalist again and again and again, be it the father of a murder victim, be it a day laborer, uh, you know, be it, uh, you know, um, someone working, you know, in a, in a city job or whatever it is. When you do that again and again, as a journalist, it really trains you, I think, uh, to be a novelist, right? To, to sort of be able to enter into the perspectives 
of all the different people that are in your story, right? And so to me, um, you know, being a journalist and having curiosity about the city that I covered and later the countries that I covered because I was a foreign correspondent as well, it just sort of taught me the importance also of context, of understanding the history, um, the context of the places that I write about. And so to me, anytime I go to a place, I'm trying to understand um, that context, that history, even if it's places that I've never been. I've never been to Yemen. I've never been to many of the places that are in this novel, right? I've never been to Vietnam. But each time I've visited those places in my fiction, I tried to immerse myself as much as I could in the culture of those places. And so, um, because that's what being a journalist taught me was that there's probably things there that you don't know about, you know, learn to recognize you have blind spots and then attack your blind spots and try to fill them in. And so all of those things, I think that's a good strategy for being an American novelist and also a good strategy for being an American citizen. (laughs) I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, well, that's what Joe Sanderson seems to share with you um, as author and character, right? Is that he is interested in discovering his blind spots. And it seems to me that, you know, you're trying to talk about we, look, we've seen uh, one thing that I was going to say is prefatory here is like, you know, the, 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 the King verdict and the rights in L.A. seem like a to presage all these other things that occurred. I mean, I live in Missouri, so Ferguson uh, was very similar. Sugi lives in, Min- Min- in Minneapolis. And so, uh, you know, George Floyd was murdered there. Wow. We've seen these divisive reactions to clear racism from police departments and institutional racism over time, right? But there is another principle, another American principle that resists that and that is against it. And it comes up in different places with different people. We're all Americans who oppose those things, the three of us. Um, And -hmm. it's interesting that that Joe seems to find his way there from a position where he would not normally have been taught that. Does that make sense? Is he tapping? Yes, it does. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, he grew up in he grew up in the United States of the 1950s, right? He he was a young boy in the 1950s, and we're talking about you know the very peak of the idea of um, of the power of the white American boy, <laughs> you know, and that's part of the um, the joy of writing this is that I lived a little tiny bit of that as a, an American boy in the 60s, even though I was a brown American boy. Um, I have a great epigraph um, uh, from David Foster Wallace in which he says, because David Foster Wallace, like Joe Sanderson, also grew up in Urbana, Illinois. Mm -hmm. And David Foster Wallace says that one of the things he missed the most about his childhood was his sense that everything in the world had been created for him to discover. And I think that's where Joe Sanderson begins. He begins from this, this sense that the world belongs to him. Um, you know, in many different meanings of the of the word belong, right? The word I mean, that's a position of privilege him. that he comes from. A position right? of privilege. Yeah. And and he gradually and, and and the thing is he finds that privilege very unsatisfying because he is not he doesn't want to follow the rules that his brothers his brother uh, follows. He doesn't want to follow the rules that his neighbor Roger Ebert down the street, because <laughs> Roger Ebert was his neighbor. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to be the good boy. He wants to be a rebel. He wants to be true to himself, and he sees that he, in, him, in a way, he himself is an outsider in that in that kind in that culture, and so he embraces the outsider. He, he embraces the downtrodden, right? Um, because he feels 
their sense of alienation too. And I think that this is a common thing in the United States. And I think it's, it's, it's one of the paths that we follow to a fuller understanding of our country is, the, is, is taking our own sense of alienation and understanding how this culture produces alienation with its inequalities and its racisms. It's um, one of my one of the things that's so interesting about Joe Sanderson is also that he chooses himself to be an outsider repeatedly. Right. right? He doesn't it's like he moves to one country and stays there. Um, he moves to one country and then he moves again and then he moves again and then he moves again. It's sort of um, like a relentless. I don't know. It's like a very um, endearing kind of there's a there's an endearing optimism in transience. Um that is, I think, yeah, connected to connected to the the power and privilege and, and uh, that we're talking about too, and um, yeah, it's sort of I don't know, like, and and as a result, like, there's also kind of an episodic nature to the story, um, mm, right? Which I don't know, like, when I think of episodic, I I think of like um, like cowboy stories, like wanderer wanders, like Don Quixote is episodic, um, and. Right. He's also, um, he also talks back, um, right? Like you imagine him talking back to the author, um, which is like one of the things that I think is funniest. Cause I mean, it, like, right. Journalism. So journalism or, or you're sort of talking about embedding yourself in communities like anthropology, right? Like that's a, there's a transaction that's going on between source and reporter. And one of the things that your novel does that is so cool is that it also kind of, uh, imagines the ways that, um, a source might have a lot of opinions about the writing themselves, as many sources do. Yeah, I, I am stealing his story from him. And this is something that we do as journalists and as novelists, too. Very often, if we write about a real person and we, or we, we take from our own lives, uh, as many novelists do. And so Joe is someone who is witnessing me do this in the book and speaks from the footnotes. And, and that, that, to me, that had a, a double function. I mean, part of it was to talk about the writing process and, and, and the choices that we make and, and how we have to be loyal to a truth that sometimes um, makes our characters, our subjects, um, you know, look less uh, flattering than, uh, than, than they might look uh, otherwise. It's also a way of approaching the idea that Joe lived in another time. So Joe lived in this time when the, you know, the, the, the term woke was 30 years in the future, right? <laughs> he had no idea that that term would exist. And, and so he's someone who really did benefit from his privilege. He had many affairs with, with different women drawn to him because of his sort of rugged Marlboro man good looks, you know? And, and he also was always rescued and saved, except for the very end, right? He, when he joins a guerrilla army. He was rescued and saved by his white privilege, by his American passport, by the money that his brother sent to him from, you know, from the United States. And so those footnotes are my way of entering into of, of acknowledging the fact that Joe lived in this other time um, and that he himself never completely dealt with his own white privilege. That's funny. I'm reminded of um, many years ago, I took a reporting trip with a photographer friend of mine who is a um, a white man and everywhere we went, um, he was mobbed by like children and just, I don't know, just wherever we went, he was, um, <laughs> he was, he was like the, the, wow, the center wow. of the star and, and, um, and I would sort of like wander behind being like, what am I chopped liver? <laughs> and it just, um, yeah, it was, it was, um, I mean, it was also a hugely fun experience, but having those two perspectives together, um, 
And I think like they're twinned in such an interesting way in your book. So um, we so appreciate this conversation. And we want to encourage our listeners to pick up The Last Great Road Bum and Hector's other books and essays. And we'll be linking to the New York Times Sunday Magazine piece in our show notes. And Hector, we really appreciate your joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor and a privilege. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast on Literary Hub. This show is produced by Ann Kinnigan-Dorf. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Instagram at fiction.nonfiction.podcast. In each of these places, you'll find links to our LitHub radio show notes, including some of the readings we mentioned in this episode. You can also find video versions of our episodes on our YouTube channel. Our website, with a full video and audio archive, and episodes grouped by theme for educators, is at fnfpodcast.net. Until next time, stay safe and healthy out there.